Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guests on this episode of Songcraft are Bridget Carney and Rachel Price of the band Lake Street Dive. They'll join us to talk about a career that's earned them top 20 albums on the Billboard 200 chart, a half dozen singles on the AAA chart, massive critical praise, and a brand new album on None Such Records called Obviously that elevates the band's pop, rock, R&B, and jazz influences into a perfectly unique blend that's equal parts retro and contemporary. Part 1. Well, Paul, there's a little uh, segment here that we do sometimes on the show that we haven't done in a while. Is that uh, the the one where we're interesting and funny? We haven't done that in a while. I know we ha- that- we ha- we haven't done that in a while, but that's not. We're not going to get back into that just yet. Uh, Good. We're gonna do a little segment that I like to call mailbag. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, every now and again, we read some of the mail that you guys have sent us, and I'm of course speaking about email. Right. Uh, no, we yeah. we store all of our mail in a giant bag. Right. Don't send us a letter. It'll freak us out. (laughs) Um, So I thought I'd just share a few uh, uh, messages that we've gotten from from listeners. Um, This first one is from Andrea in Alaska. Um, She says, hey, Scott and Paul, I cannot thank you guys enough for educating me with these songwriter interviews, which you clearly put a lot of effort into. Thank you so much. I am being introduced to music I didn't listen to before and am loving the depth and history about these writers and performers. I'm listening to your podcast at this moment before you start with Linda Perry and you guys crack me up with the question, are there ladies listening? Uh, I think I remember that. We <laughs> we read some, I think that's the last time we read mail, uh, which was, uh, uh, it was all dudes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Andrea, for letting us know that there are indeed ladies listening uh, and apparently enjoying the show as well. So um, yeah. I'm going to take that as our cue to proceed as we've been proceeding. And I, yeah. I just want to say, Paul, uh, you know, watch what you say because there's ladies listening. Ladies in the room. Good, good yeah. point. Okay. <laughs> Mixed company. Yes. Uh, so this next uh, message that we got, this is from a guy named uh, the Reverend Bubba Deliverance. Uh-uh. Now, he revealed that that's not his real name. His okay. real name is Mike. But he performs uh, in Auburn, Alabama with a band called Reverend Bubba Deliverance and the Cornhole Prophets. So awesome. I don't know you know, if we'll ever make it to one of those shows or what. But uh, oh, I couldn't love that more, though. Sounds interesting. Yes. Um, but this, this begins with, with this. Hey, Scott and Paul, I'm a little pissed. Oh, now, yeah, I, I I got nervous. You don't want to piss off a reverend. No, no, not at all. Especially not Reverend Bubba Deliverance. Uh, so he says, I stumbled across your podcast about six months ago. So like most things I do in life, I listen to the entire series backwards, beginning at about episode 120 down to the first episode. Meanwhile, when a new one appeared, I'd listen to it, then go back to the list. I'm pissed because I'm done. I wish there were a hundred more episodes. Wow. So yeah, that was a big relief. Yeah. That anger we can take. <laughs> Thank you, Reverend. Thank you for listening. Thanks for checking us out. Thanks for caring. 
and you know, he said uh, he, he said you two are great interviewers, and the homework you do is in, in depth. And he says uh, you, you were just as good early on in the podcast as you are today. Matter of fact, I think my favorite interview was episode number one with Jim Peterick. Uh, so that's good to know that we have not improved at all. <laughs> I'm also sorry they had to listen to that many episodes to find a favorite. <laughs> yeah man that, that's that's stick to itiveness i'm gonna I go all the way i'm going all the way to the bottom and <laughs> there it is episode one now thank you uh mike aka reverend bubba deliverance that was very nice Amazing. you're giving us a big head um and here's one uh this this was this is an instagram message now we don't you know we don't talk a lot about instagram right um because well, you can't put those messages in a bag. That's that's what makes those awkward. <laughs> I mean, Instagram is you know we've kind of moved on to TikTok, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we got this message from Rashida, another uh, another woman. Paul has wow. written to us. Yeah, uh, amazing. Um, so Rashida says, "Hey there." I'm just writing to let you know that I really, really enjoyed the podcast with Dan Nigro. That interview was so helpful to me as a songwriter. To hear him talk about how he had experienced some of his ideas being rejected while in a writing room was good to know. You never hear those types of realities. And to know that he prevailed was refreshing and inspiring. I thank you for your podcast. I've been writing songs my entire life. Uh, my grandmother said since I was four years old. And I'm 47 now, and I've started releasing my music to the public. I plan on listening to all of the episodes in your series because it's so helpful, valuable, and motivating to hear these stories. Thank you again. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. And and I, I think that one of the reasons that, that we are getting some female listeners is that you can't see us. That it's just <laughs> an audio-only podcast. Um, right. So Yeah, that helps. Because you can kind of imagine that we look like whatever you want to imagine. Right. Um, so... <laughs> I think that my voice probably, I think if, if people haven't seen me and they just hear my voice, I think they picture maybe like The Rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The Rock or a rock. Yeah. A rock or a boulder. I look like a boulder. Yeah. I don't know what to think people would think when they hear my voice. It probably just sounds like a, an unwelcome phone call from an unlisted <laughs> number. I think that's what I sound like. When we started this show, my mom listened to the first couple episodes. She said she couldn't tell which one of us was talking because uh, she uh, thought we sounded similar. So this is your own mother. You know? yeah, 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 that's great. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> my son, I love him, but he's always seemed a little indistinct to me. <laughs> uh, so we got a couple more here. Um, this one is from Jeff. He says, uh, "I am so grateful to have discovered your podcast. I have started a new phase of my songwriting and feel like I have discovered your podcast at the perfect time." I listen to episodes while walking to work, and with each episode, I walk away with a barrel of inspiration. Hearing artists like Will Hogue, Linda Perry, or Alex Ebert tell their stories feels super special to me, and it's like I'm getting access to a secret club for songwriters. I love your style of interviewing and letting the guests really share the best details based on your stellar questions. Much thanks. Wow. That's nice. how I feel, too, honestly. Yeah. Um, so th th and this, this, is, this next one's my favorite one that we've gotten recently. Awesome. This, is this is from a fellow named Paul. Now, I don't know if oh. this is you. Um, I'm guessing not. Uh, <laughs> this, this guy says, the subject line was Todd Snyder interview. Now, that was okay. our last episode that we just aired, you know, episode number 165. This is the full text of that message. A bottomless low in an otherwise great program. Maybe that's only my reaction. Play it for your parents and kids for theirs. Wow. Yeah. A bottomless low. Yeah. <laughs> that means it's still getting worse. <laughs> yeah. <I'd... laughs> 
<laughs> it hasn't stopped getting worse. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what that means of play it for your parents and kids. Uh, your children are, are pretty young. So I would actually love to hear their reaction. Three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to play I'm, as soon as we get off here, I'm going to go play the entire uh, hour long or hour and a half long episode <laughs> for my children. Um, they love listening to podcasts. Right. Uh, <laughs> I know they, you know, children are all about attention spans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, particularly with anyway. like dates, like, like lots of <laughs> chronology and, um, well, and that was, that was the episode where I did the, uh, you know, really pointed out how every, uh, songwriter is connected that we've ever right. interviewed. I think your children would really enjoy listening to that. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be fascinating for them. A bottomless low. I kind of want to say thanks for that email too, just because not now I have a new thing to say. A bottomless <laughs> low. That, that's a bottomless low for you, man. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So this is the last one. Uh, this is from a guy named Jay. He says, I'm a loyal listener and recently signed up through the Patreon site. I absolutely love the storytelling and how you are both able to evoke the information out of the interviewee. You can feel your passion as curious song lovers and the interviewee becomes so at ease. They're giving you uh, the stories behind the stories, which is meaning we go deep. Um, and then he goes on. This is interesting in light of our recent message from Paul. He says the Todd Snyder episode was exceptional. The six degrees of songcraft was a lot of fun. It's amazing how community and relationships play out in the songwriting and music industry. Thank you, Jay. So uh, Jay and Paul, very different reactions to uh, Todd Snyder. So we might have to have those guys on the show to yeah, uh, maybe... or at least give each other each other's info and they can yeah. talk. And maybe Paul <laughs> can convince Jay of just how abysmally bad it was. Right, right. Or they could just leg wrestle and we could, uh, <laughs> you know, put that on YouTube. <laughs> That's how we settle disputes around songcraft, leg wrestling. Uh, but Except Jay, we're all out of butter. <laughs> Jay mentioned uh, that he's a loyal uh, listener and that he signed up through Patreon. We haven't talked about Patreon in a while here right. uh, at Songcraft. So, Paul, why don't you tell the listeners what Patreon is? Patreon is a system that's set up for uh, people that want to support the podcast uh, financially, and there are different tiers. Um, some of them are pretty small. I, I think like five dollars a month that goes, you know, that low. If you just want to kick in five bucks a month, almost the way like the public radio uh, or public television model works. If if you sign up at this certain tier, ten dollars, fifteen, whatever a month, there's certain things you get, and you get to. Uh, you know, get a shout out on the show or uh, we have some some T-shirts now, things that at yeah. certain at tiers you'll, you'll get a, a Songcraft T-shirt, which uh, I believe those are scratch and sniff. Is that correct? <laughs> well, if you wear them enough days, they are uh, <laughs> yeah, no scratch, just sniff. <laughs> yeah. So if you go to Patreon dot com slash Songcraft show, you can see our Patreon page. And that's where people who believe in our mission, like Paul said, can help support what we're doing here. Help us keep the lights on at Songcraft. Craft. And um, there are uh, several tiers, as he said. And if you uh, subscribe at the $20 a month tier, you get yourself a free T-shirt. Now, that has actually been a perk on Patreon for a while, but we just now got the T-shirts I know. made. I, I, as soon as I said it, I thought, there's some people listening to me say T-shirt, and they're just calling BS on me right now. Like, you guys yeah. have no T-shirts. We now have, we literally have T-shirts. What we discovered here at Songcraft is that making a podcast is much easier than making a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> frankly, the first two looms that we purchased, uh, Paul broke. 
Um, and then we had <laughs> a problem. That was a bottomless low. <laughs> <laughs> we had a problem with our cotton supplier. And then as soon as we got that straightened out, we had yeah. a problem with our polyester supplier. Yeah. Um, so it was just one thing after another. We initially printed the shirts. They said song crap. Uh, and we didn't have anybody... <laughs> to uh, proofread so it's the just logo caught covid <laughs> but you know maybe you're not ready to commit to uh supporting songcraft at, at 20 dollars a month but you still want a t-shirt and you know what you can buy a t-shirt for uh, a one-time purchase you don't have to sign up for patreon if you want one but if you go to our website at songcraftshow.com uh, there is now a tab that says t-shirts and it even has an exclamation mark it's the only tab with an exclamation mark because it lets you know New and exciting. We've got five different colors to choose from. And the shirt says Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. It's a pretty cool shirt, too. We don't have white shirts and black shirts and stuff like everybody else has. Our options are cream, stone gray, heavy metal, cardinal, and light olive. So these are these are cool shirts. These aren't heavy just like metal. boring shirts. No, these are awesome. Yeah, amazing. I'm going to wear two at so. once. <laughs> I'm going to get all five, collect them all. So if you want one of those t-shirts, you can get it at songcraftshow.com or sign up on Patreon, help support us, and you can get one for free as a perk. There's also other perks on there like stickers and even lunch with the two of us. If you subscribe at the $50 level or above, we will uh, take you to our favorite taco place and have lunch with you if you are in Southern California. We're not going to fly you here for that, but if you're yeah. here or you're visiting here, then, then we'll take you out to lunch and hang out with you. A lot of cool stuff you can get, but it really does help us just keep things going here so if you believe in our mission and and appreciate what we're doing as some of these folks obviously do who wrote in then uh, please consider doing that awesome and now we're going to show our support for great music by having a conversation with rachel and bridget from lake street dive yeah, this was a little bit of a different thing for us because there were four people on on the in the conversation and we're all remote. Uh, everybody was in a different place that day. We uh, did this via Zoom. So uh, not only did we record it uh, through Zoom, but we each recorded it separately on our own. So when you hear this interview and you're like, why is Scott yelling? Uh, that's because I feel the need to yell when I'm on Zoom because I feel like my laptop's far away and they right. must not be able to hear me. So therefore, I'm just yelling into my microphone. So I apologize for that. And and Rachel is in New York City and she's got her windows open and you can hear New York City very well. So uh, yeah. if you haven't been in New York in a while, it'll make you uh, long to to be in the in the great city of New York. Um, but with that little caveat uh, about our sound. Fantastic conversation. This is a great band. Yeah. Uh, love these guys, and uh, I think you're going to dig it. Yeah, and and maybe it, when we interview great bands, maybe don't yell at them. You know what I'm going to put a moratorium on is uh, a, a bottomless low of yelling. Yeah, enough. Part two. Lake Street Dive's tight harmonies and wide-ranging tastes in pop, rock, R&B, and jazz blend together to create a cohesive sound that celebrates retro influences with a contemporary attitude. Formed at the New England Conservatory of Music in 2004, the group has released seven studio albums, issued two EPs, and charted a half-dozen singles on Billboard's adult alternative airplay chart, including Call Off Your Dogs, Good Kisser, Shame Shame Shame, and Hypotheticals, the latter off their most recent album on Nonesuch Records titled Obviously. The group has appeared on Late Night with David Letterman, Conan, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, and NPR's Tiny Desk series. They've earned many millions of YouTube views with their innovative interpretations of cover songs, as well as with originals such as What I'm Doing Here, You Go Down Smooth, Mistakes, Side Pony, and Bad Self-Portraits. 
Lead singer Rachel Price and bassist Bridget Carney join us to talk about their songwriting process and the evolution of the band. Rachel and Bridget, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to uh, great to speak with you guys. We we love to to just kind of start off um, with our guests and and get a little sense of um, you know where you were raised and what kind of music you were hearing growing up as a kid that ultimately inspired you to start kind of trying your hand at at writing songs of your own. So why don't we? Uh, start with Bridget and and kind of give us a sense of that. And then Rachel, you know, the, the same question for you as well. Okay, so I was raised, uh, born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. And I grew up listening to, you know, the standard fare, uh, pop music, whatever was on the radio, top 10 kind of stuff. Um, Boys to Men, All for One, that kind of thing. And uh and then also, like, I'd say my parents' taste in music influenced uh, what I ended up getting into a lot, too. They listened to The Beatles and Paul Simon. I remember Graceland playing over and over again at the the Carney household. Um, and then I also, like, you know, grew, grew up playing music in school. So uh, I was playing, like, classical music, playing upright bass in the orchestra and jazz music in the school jazz band. And then like sang in my church choir. Um, so I think all of those kind of types of music definitely like became a part of um, what I le- love about music and what I think about music. So well, tell us a little bit about some of your early songwriting efforts when you first decided to, to try your hand at it. Yeah. So I remember my very first song. I was probably um, about seven years old and uh, I was playing piano but I was playing kind of like a bass line, like it was just my left hand playing, and it went boom, doom, doom, and then it went, the melody went, walking along in a forest, singing a song with the chorus too. <laughs> nice. So, you know. <laughs> That's that's already better than my first song, so <laughs> well done. It was my yeah, it was my first hit. So yeah. um, <laughs> amazing. No, I I I think uh, I I do remember that, and it's crazy that it's still in my brain all these years later. But I think it was kind of like a moment of discovery where I was like so excited by the creative process and the fact that I could like make something in my head that um, you know other people would then have in their heads, and my family would like hum it to themselves and I'd be like, Hey, that's my song. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Rachel, same question for you. <laughs> uh, I grew up, uh, outside of Nashville in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Um, we moved there when I was little from Australia, but my, my dad is a, is a California native. Originally my mom is Australian and my dad, uh, is a musician. He, he does a lot of stuff. Um, when he was young, he was a pretty like, uh, I think he was a pretty proficient like mandolin and, and fiddler and I think he played like bluegrass and folk music but by the time that I was around and growing up he wasn't really doing that so I only heard about it um, but he also studied classical composition um, at school in Australia 
And then we actually moved to the States because he wrote like a hit song with this Australian, Australian artist named Billy Fields. Um, And that basically gave us the money to, to relocate the family to Australia. So my dad was kind of a jack of all trades, but the, the majority of the music that he made growing up that I sort of witnessed was classical, like choral music. He would like, he writes a lot of music inspired by the writings of the Baha'i faith, which is the religion that I was raised in. He's a Baha'i, I'm a Baha'i, um, we're, we're all Baha'is. Um, and so he was mostly doing that, but also has this background in sort of like writing pop music. And he was always in, very much in love with jazz. I think that was like really the first music that he really sort of introduced to me and that took a, took a hold in my passions because I started singing jazz when I was like five or six. Hmm. And my grandmother loved jazz. My grandfather loved jazz. And so um, my dad was pretty proficient at playing jazz guitar, like just simple comping style. So he would always accompany me. And my sisters and I had like an Andrew sister style like group for a little while. Hmm. We did a lot of three-part harmony. We always sang in choir. Um, I was really into musical theater, uh, but I got into pop singing like sort of simultaneously, almost more from a gospel route because I was singing that sort of in the more more spiritual settings that I was finding myself in right. um, with our community. So gospel was actually kind of early on more of my gateway into singing pop music because as soon as I got into gospel, then I was listening to like Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin um, and Donny Hathaway singers that come from the gospel tradition and uh they kind of all formed together i mean all of this music is intertwined um entirely but my focus was always jazz um you know up until i met everyone in lake street dive because i thought that's sort of what i felt like i was the best at doing Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually curious, you know, sometimes we'll ask questions uh, and you, you sort of know what the answer is going to be. And this one, I have no idea what the answer is. But when it comes to the Baha'i faith, is there a musical part of that form of worship? Is there some, you know, are there services that involve music? Is there kind of a tonality that you've gravitated to that's that's from the influences that, that feed into the Baha'i faith? Yeah, there's definitely a culture of it. But the Baha'i faith is such a young religion that it's essentially... Uh, the the communities adopt the culture that everyone already had. So if you you know if you go to a Baha'i gathering in Romania, you might hear like traditional Romanian songs. It, it really just depends on on um, on where you are because it's only like 150 years old, and so we don't really have like distinct traditions. But um, you know. I grew up singing in a choir with a man who had become a Baha'i and he was raised a Christian. And so he wrote gospel music with Baha'i, um, with Baha'i writings. And so I just learned that way. And my dad wrote, wrote in a classical style. Um, I grew up in a community with a lot of Baha'i musicians. I grew up with um, Seals and Crofts. <laughs> um, they're, they're two Baha'is from the 60s. And so they were at all like my all the like Baha'i gatherings, I was like Dash and Jimmy, that's Seals and Crofts were there. And there's this country artist um, named Dan, Dan Seals. Um, he was there as well. So there was just a lot of music happening around me. Mm. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that we always like to highlight on the show, since it's obviously a show about songwriting, but 
is is emphasizing you know so many people take certain records for granted or whatever and they don't think about the fact that someone wrote this song they put effort into this you know that there's a craft to it there's an art to it there's you know there's sweat equity to it um what i find really interesting with you guys is i understand bridget that you won a songwriting contest that really had a lot to do with kind of getting Lake Street Dive off the ground in the beginning. So songwriting not only was, you know, providing the material that you guys were performing, but in in a very literal sense, kind of helped launch the start of you guys as a recording band. I'd like to hear uh, a bit about that. Yeah, well, I think songwriting has also, it's always been a sort of central part of our band. Like, when McDuck was the one who originally gathered the four of us together and said, we're now a band called Lake Street Dive. Um, his sort of vision for it was that it would be a, a band that we could all write songs for. Um, and so, yeah, we never really had a phase where we were like playing mostly covers or playing other people's songs. We were always um, writing our own songs. And then early on, like a couple years after we'd been playing together, I entered a song of ours, a song that I'd written for the band called Sometimes When I'm Drunk and You're Wearing My Favorite Shirt <laughs> into the the John Lennon songwriting competition. And it won a prize, like not the biggest prize, but a, a prize that included like, I think it was $5,000 and like a printing of like a thousand copies of a c- CD. And so it really was like a a fortuitous moment for us to like receive that recognition and that prize because we were college students and we didn't have money or, you know, a record label or anything. And we kind of like shouldn't have recorded an album yet. Like we weren't like really good (laughs) enough, but, uh, but we had, we had a small budget and we had, they were going to print a thousand of our CDs, whatever we turned in. So Um, So we went into the studio, which is like such a great learning process. And again, like every time you go into the studio, you have to write 10 songs or whatever. So it kind of helped us get over that hump where in the early stages of being a band or having a project, you're like, is this just something we're going to like play at a bar a few times or like, are we really a band? And so, yeah, I think like the fact that we made that that album, which we don't share publicly anymore, um, was still like a, a really important uh, and and great uh, learning tool for us. I'm, I'm so thankful there's not any kind of tribunal that we have to pass when making a record. It says, are you good enough to make this record? Because if, if that were the case, then, you know, most bands would probably never have ever gotten off the ground. You know, that first record is is such a, you know, trial and error process. But you guys actually came out and made a, a, a great uh, first few records. Um, and I, I want to ask you in particular about the 2010 just self-titled Lake Street Dive album. That What's really interesting about that record to me is that except for one song, all the songs were kind of written by a single band member solo which can be kind of a hard thing to make a cohesive record out of, but you guys certainly did that. Um, I only know that from you know checking the credits, but there is that one song, We All Love the Same Songs, that all four band members came together and wrote on. So my, my thought is, well, that must have come out of a jam. Is that the case, or how did that become the, the first collaboration? I think that we, yeah, I, my memory says that uh, we worked on that song maybe at your mom's house, Rachel, or 
in Nashville. I definitely remember us being in Hendersonville. I have like a specific memory of us actually being in the Gundry's basement, which are like our best friends. <laughs> I think we were staying there. Um, but I recall it was either you or McDuck coming up with the with like just the chord progression. Was mm-hmm. maybe it was you? Yeah, I think so. And then we all kind of like talked out the lyrics and and the melody and everything and decided how it should go. It's taken us like a strangely long time to like come up with the idea of co-writing together as a band. (laughs) Yeah, it's really funny. Keeping away, keeping that Yeah, sometimes certain bands will will find themselves, you know, just kind of attaching a credit to everyone. Like, oh, I, you know, I decided it should be faster, and so I get a writing credit on that. And that's that's not necessarily how it always works. It, you know, to to actually, since you guys are all writers, to actually acknowledge the fact that there's a structure to it, um, and to be a part of the writing process means to be a part of the song's actual blueprint. Yeah, and this is like such a, a multifaceted issue because, of course, there is great importance on every contribution that goes into a song. You know, the guitar part is part of the song and the, yeah. the background vocals are, are part of the song. But uh, we also have had many discussions about the fact that we want to be sort of like open about um, the, con- the contributions of each person individually as a songwriter because it's that's also Im- important and like... As a listener, I always love to find that out. You know, I'm always looking in the liner notes yeah. and like trying to guess whose song it was. And you can kind of get to know the different like writing personalities within the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you guys about the 2014 album, Bad Self Portraits, which is that that was the album where I first became aware of you guys um, as a band and and thought that was just a, a killer album. Um, but I, you know, I listened to, to songs like better than, um, which Bridget, you, you wrote solo. Um, there's kind of this muscle shoals kind of gritty Southern soul kind of rootsiness, um, aspect to, to that record that I hear, I hear more on that record than, you know, as a whole than on some of the other stuff that you guys have done. But I turn up the This is kind of an interpretation question because better than and, and 17 are ones Bridget that, that you wrote solo. Um, but this is really a question for Rachel, you know, as the singer of the band, you're not only singing your own songs, you're singing the songs of, of other band members who might have written something that you weren't involved in the creation of, but you are kind of the, the one channeling it. And 
that record's just grittier. You know, the vocals, the the vocals are are different than than on the previous record. They're they're more soulful they're they're just kind of have a more of an edge to them and i'd be curious as someone who's not only a songwriter but also a song interpreter how you kind of work with the other members of the band who have written certain songs in terms of figuring out how they get delivered in the way that the writer may may have envisioned or even some of the negotiation that goes on in in some of that process yeah i think that this is where my jazz training and background came in really handy in this band is is that I already approached music mostly from um, the standpoint of, of like an interpreter of songs. Like I, I actually started writing because of Lake Street Dive. I sort of didn't really consider it, but I definitely, you know, considered myself somebody who took great pleasure and great care to, to uh, listen to a song and digest uh, the, the vibe and the meaning and then to use my voice in the best way to sort of communicate the song. Um, you know, on a sort of a, just a brass tacks sort of standpoint, like I, you know, always tried to learn the melody like very, very much verbatim from them and, and, and learn it uh, faithfully to what they wrote. And I was in a great position because I feel like uh, all the songwriters in this band are like super um, specific when they when they are specific about a melody they're like this is the melody and then they're also super communicative when they're just like this is gestural and I want you to like do whatever uh, feels natural in your voice mm. and mm. that's always been a really helpful um, thing for me as a singer as, as everybody really communicates that super well to me I'm never confused um, mm. but you know it's it's hard to say because my voice has changed so much in the process of being in this band, you know, like 16 years, I had to completely sort of change my approach and my technique. And I, I really, I really love that. Like, I love going back and hearing like, what I sounded like 10 years ago, it's a it's a pretty different sound. And, and I think I know what you mean, even specifically about the grittiness. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of that was like, in, in a certain sense, bad technique, but also a really cool sound. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> certain things that had to change. Um, and like, also, like, I was still in very much a, like a discovery of singing in that way. Like, I just didn't like singing like a run was like a really like insane, thrilling experience. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know my voice did that. And like, like mm. Bad Soul Fortress was like my first belting experience. Like I hadn't belted really huh. like big in a room. Yeah. Um, huh. And I was like learning how to do it on stage. Um, around that time because, you know, Mike played, Mike played trumpet and then he played acoustic guitar and then he played electric guitar. And so each time that happened, the quality of my, of singing had to change, um, ah. because of what I was singing over. Mm. And so bad self portraits was like a new thing because it was like, we were in a studio, I was hearing myself back in a, in a different way. Um, mm. and that creates like a it creates an environment of like discovery that's like very surprising. So like, I'm very surprised when I hear that record back in general for ah. the band. I'm just like, whoa, we were so clearly in a place of just like, almost like playing without knowing what it is we sounded like. Ha, huh. well. You and Mike wrote the single, What I'm Doing Here, um, which uh, has got kind of like that six, eight classic Southern soul feel. What, what can you tell us about that song? Um, 
Yeah, I wrote that song. It's actually directly based on a on a soul tune called um, "Then You Can." I think it's called "Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye." Do you know know that song? If it don't work out. <laughs> anyway, I had been learning that song on guitar, so basically, I was just like, took the song and kind of treated it as a springboard for another song, and that what I'm doing here may have been the first. It was either the first or the second song that I ever wrote in in its entirety, like lyrics, wow. chords. Um, it was definitely one of my first songs, and uh, it was a pretty thrilling, yeah, feeling to to uh, show it to the band, and they were all like, "Oh, yeah, cool. Well, we can play that." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, speak more highly about like the joys of like becoming a songwriter within the framework of Wake Street Dive because <laughs> it's just been you know it's a very like supportive experience I, I've, I feel very lucky to have like come into songwriting in this process so hmm. yeah I mean I was just trying to write a Sam Cooke song basically <laughs> in such an encouraging supportive environment how do you guys let each other know I don't think that's quite as good as it could be Good question. I, I feel like we're lucky to not have to say that to each other often, but I think we are sometimes like, if we're ever productively, what's the word, uh, con constructive critics to one another, then it's usually uh, in a very tactful, uh, you know, detached sort of way. It's It's usually like, oh, I was wondering, you know, there, I had this idea for how this part could be slightly different. It's always, it's always very gentle. Um, and, but honestly, I can't really even think of an instance where that's happened recently. I mean, sometimes we'll discuss lyrics and huh. say something like, what did you mean here? Because that question is like really important for a songwriter to even know that people are wondering it sort of like illustrates that yeah. you maybe haven't made yourself clear enough yet. And so like then if you are able right. to answer that question, it'll sometimes lead you to like an alternative lyric that like illustrates your meaning better. So we, I feel like we've spoken to each other in that way before. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Do you remember any other instances, Rich? Well, there was like a specifically on this um, new record, there was like a line um, on Sarah and we were just like, this line doesn't work. And just, it's gotta, gotta, we need, we have to change it. Um, and, you know, Mike Calabrese, who wrote the song, uh, was like, Shh, absolutely. He was just like, for sure. I mean, he's, he applies a lot of his, like, um, he studies a lot of Zen Buddhism and, like, he applies a lot of that to how he feels about songwriting, which is a really nice, um, philosophy that he offers which is like he doesn't believe that a song is his when he writes it you know he believes that it's like you know come he's plucked it from the like the the universe of creation yeah. <laughs> I don't know I'm sort of paraphrasing but um 
you know, it's a nice, it was a nice thing for him to express because then I think we all knew that, you know, it would be very easy to say, I don't think this line is really working hmm. yeah. and say, and then change it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, speaking of, of early songs of yours, Rachel, that, that you wrote by yourself, we see that again with uh, Mistakes, which was on the uh, Side Pony album from 2016. Um, and I think that's the first song, solo written song of yours to appear on a Lake Street Dive full album, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that album is is interesting to me because it was produced by Dave Cobb in Nashville. And, and Dave is probably best known for working with Chris Stapleton and, you know, a lot of rootsy kind of, you know, country influenced um, singer songwriters typically. And you guys have have had some of that kind of roots oriented stuff in your music. Um, but that album is not what I would have expected uh, with seeing Dave Cobb's name on it. I mean, I listened to like Bridget's song, Call Off Your Dogs, and it's really like there's like a lot of Motown in there. It's sort of retro pop, but it's also kind of contemporary. I'll let you go in a minute if you want to go back. It's not what I want to say. my salutations and throw them away. So I'd love to just hear, given that that now we're starting to see a, a wider spectrum in terms of the, the songwriting uh, coming in on that album and just the evolution of the sound, how you guys sort of evolve individually as writers while also evolving collectively as a band in terms of what our music is going to sound like at a particular time. So we made the album Side Pony with Dave Cobb, and one of the main reasons that we went to him was we loved the Sturgill Simpson album that he made, uh, Metamodern Sounds and Country Music. Mm -hmm. And that album is so stylistically adventurous, even though like Sturgill's songs and his singing style are like very uh, of one sort of genre. And then on that album, there were just all these layers of like uh, kind of psychedelic like soundscapes and uh, heavier, more distorted sounds. And we just thought it was like such an incredible combination of things, which is kind of like what we're usually seeking is to like not be one thing in particular, but be a, a unique combination of things. And so we reached out to Dave and he wrote back and said, uh, or he called us up and, and was super excited about the project. And I think he's kind of like found his niche as a mostly Americana producer, but he also is like a very musically omnivorous guy and is super into like the Bee Gees. Like I remember he showed us um, the Bee Gees first album, I think it's called One. And it's like uh, almost kind of Beatlesy, like like uh, rock and roll sounding Bee Gees. So, anyways, we we uh, we knew going in that it wasn't just going to be his his sort of Americana sound, and he was going to uh, roll with us in in whatever direction we wanted to take it. And like in general, again, we're we're always looking to create sort of like new combinations of sounds and continue to grow 
the amount of sounds that we can create as a band and like make each album kind of like hopefully incorporate some like new character each time around um just so we're not in like a a feedback loop of you know making the same album over and over again (laughs) right yeah yeah you know, uh, looking ahead to the Free Yourself Up album, uh, I want to ask you guys about the song I Can Change, which I know is a, is a co-write between the two of you. Forget that old adage That history continues to Keep us from the world we want to see I am scared that I won't get it but fear won't rule my heart tonight I can change, I can change I can still change, I can still change I hear such a kind of sophisticated understanding and approach to how you guys, you know, hit the creative process. Uh, you, normally I would ask, is there a division of labor between the two of you when it comes to lyric or melody or anything like that? But I, I'm beginning to assume that there's just not, that, that you kind of just live in a, in a space where you just bounce all of it back and forth together and just do what feels right. It, would I be right about that? Yeah, more or less, definitely. I think um, it just depends on the song. I can change specifically, uh, Bridget sent me the, a verse and a chorus, so... The song was basically there. It was ready to go. The statement was, um, you know, very clear. So I added a, a second verse, um, which is something I just love doing. It's just like so fun to like expound upon an already great idea. Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in reverse, Nobody Stopping You Now was exactly reverse as far as labor. I, I sent Bridget an idea of a song sort of a verse with no chorus, um, an idea already very much there. This is what the song is about. How can we make this into an entire song? And then she completed it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely it works. Um, it works all the ways. And this is like how it's working now in the band. We sort of don't have one, one route. Um, but you know, we also are aware of each other's like strengths and um, what somebody might like be particularly interested in working on. And, you know, like when, when somebody like, you know, Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen, when, when they write and deliver a song, uh, oftentimes they're occupying a, a character. Um, and sometimes that's very, very obvious based on the narrative of the song. And sometimes I think it's just sort of the attitude that they sort of take on. Do you, Rachel, are you always Rachel when you sing a song? Or do you sometimes just take on the character of what, you know, if Bridget has sort of provided a certain attitude to a song, you know, maybe it's not your take on that issue, or maybe that's not how you're feeling at the moment. You just decide to sort of slide into that, or do you always try to go, well, let's let's make this something that that Rachel would say. No, definitely the character. Hmm. I'm more of I'm more of like a. Some sometimes I I even create an entire like musical in my head about whatever set we're playing that night. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I've done it before. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's way more fun than yeah. just thinking about it from me my perspective and it's it's way easier than a bunch of costumes too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> um well bridget i want to ask you about the song uh good kisser also from the the free yourself up album um that song is interesting to me because i've listened to it multiple times and i can't decide if it sounds like something that beyonce could sing or if it sounds like something that belongs to the 60s it's somehow like 
it somehow belongs you manage to do this thing where you you make these kind of timeless songs you go oh that totally sounds retro no it doesn't it totally sounds current if you're gonna tell them everything tell them i'm a good kisser tell them all the things you told me in your desperate whisper if you're gonna tell them everything don't leave out the good part Tell him the way that you broke my heart When you told me that you missed her That was one of these songs where I kind of had like a lyrical concept uh, going into like the writing process where sometimes I'll keep a journal of uh, song ideas that are like not even necessarily like a specific lyric, but more of like a plot line. Like this is like what the song is about. And so, yeah, that song, I kind of had this idea going of like, okay, you know, maybe like someone's like talking about you and like giving away something about this like relationship that you shared. And, and, and then like, I want the, the sort of, uh, surprise, uh, reveal to be like, well, if you're going to, if you're going to tell them all of that stuff, you might as well just tell them I'm like really good at kissing, you know? Um, so that was kind of like the thing I jotted down in my notebook. And then I was like on stage, um, playing with Lake Street Dive at a, a, a show that we had in uh, North Carolina. And I like heard this drum groove that was like already on another song of ours. We had, we'd kind of reinvented a song from Side Pony called How Good It Feels to Be Alone. And we were playing it with this new drum groove. And I was like, that's it. That's what I need for that song idea that I had. And so like after we finished the, uh, the set that night, I, I went uh, into the green room and just like wrote basically the verse and the chorus and like everything except for the bridge of that song. And um, yeah, stylistically, I think it that groove inspired some of like what the sort of first hook of the song is that bump like that part to me sounds very 70s, like Stevie Wonder or something funk. Um, and then when the chorus hits, that's kind of where it gets more like, like you're saying Beyonce to me. Tell him I'm a good Um, yeah. And that, that was just, I guess, like an exciting place for that surprise, like special reveal line to like land in like a new stylistic territory and like a new part of the singer's range. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You you talk about um, you know basically walking off stage and and going back in the green room and and jotting the song down, you know, for, forgetting the fact that you know we're we're a year now into this COVID thing, but before that, you know, when when life was normal and you guys are on the road all the time, um, I'd love to hear from both of you if you have uh, like any sort of writing discipline if you have to kind of consciously carve out time and say, you know, at, at, at this time every day, I'm going to try to to write a little bit of something, or if it's just kind of about finding those moments to yourself when you're kind of, you know, in this touring and band situation, you're around other people a lot, you know, how do each of you kind of find those times to yourself to just work on writing? I think, I think Bridget will answer this question beautifully. 
and I'll contribute and say that I, I have like no songwriting discipline. Yeah, I, I don't have great discipline either. Um, so it's helpful for me to like structure it in like, and usually that'll be either kind of deadline oriented, like, okay, we booked a studio and we have to make an album now. So I have to like do the thing and write the songs. Um, and also sometimes I'll just say, okay, look, we have a month off here. I'm going to book a week where I'm like focused on songwriting. Um, so I will build it into my schedule in that way more so than like every day I get up and I do like a journal and then, you know, later in the day I get an instrument. Yeah. I, I'm more like, like to do it in sort of focused chunks. Um, and a lot of the songwriting for, for obviously we did while we were on tour. Um, a lot of it was collaborative, although we don't really collaborate like as songwriters that sit in a room together and like brainstorm our ideas. We more so like come up with an idea, pass it off to somebody else, have them put their work into it, pass it back to you, and then maybe consult on revisions. But, um, but yeah, I have some very specific memories of like the songs from our new album, obviously, and like where which city we were touring at when those ideas came. Um, I think the bridge of hypotheticals, I remember riding on a moving bus, like uh, we were, we'd, our bus had broken down. So we had to do like one of the drives that we would normally do at night during the day. And we spent a whole day driving from St. Louis to uh, somewhere else. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were just in the bus all day and I was like in the back lounge with my laptop and my, uh, MIDI keyboard and, and that was where the bridge of that song came out Nobody can see into the future Even the weatherman gets caught in the rain sometimes But I see something in you that I've never seen before And I can't be sure no maybe not But I think it's worth kind of reminds me i remember we we interviewed somebody I, I can't remember who it was a couple years back and went through kind of a lengthy question about you know some people are in you know inspired by family members or inspired by changes in their lives or some people are inspired by nature you know what inspires you and they just said a, a deadline <laughs> that's yeah. the, the most yeah. inspiring limitations thing are a deadline or like yeah a limit same yeah. same idea are super helpful for me like i think that i'm usually I'm so overwhelmed by like just the vastness of music that it's hard to write a song because you're like, what if I don't have like a specific purpose or I like know what the song's for, then I, I like immediately get caught up in the like, well, what, you know, what's it yeah. for? Um, and so while I think that that's like a longer thing to like get over and just sort of like, you know, experience the like, you know, uh, beautiful, just like creating of, of music, no matter what it's for or what it could be. Um, I love, I love a, like a goal or like a limitation, like a prompt. Um, you know, like one day I sat down and I was just like, I just want to write a song that sounds so, like I want to write in the style of a Lucinda Williams tune. And like, so I just like thought about the way that she writes lyrics and like some of her chord structures and, and things like that. And, you know, there's then a song emerges with that limitation yeah. in mind. Um, so, 
yeah, that works. That usually works really well for me. I, I mean, I've had pretty good luck, um, even though they're short lived, like participating in some sort of weekly songwriting groups where you write a song a week. I know Bridget's done that. Um, and yeah, I find the like, once the objective is very clear, if it's something like plugging in another verse or even writing a bridge, I find that part like super, um, super fun and creative. Like it could be something like I could go for a bike ride and on the way, uh, way back, I'd be like, oh, I've got the bridge in my head. But it's that yeah. those initial sparks feel like they're never going to happen again. You know, once like once you finish a song, you're like, well, I'll never write another one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, and I'm also thinking it, it, almost like a mirror image to the question that I asked you earlier, Rachel, um, where I asked about, you know, the characters that you sort of find yourself in when you're singing. There's also the question of, well, who am I singing to? And there are, you know, especially in the early days of a band, I think it's hard to even imagine an audience. You're just like, well, I'm just writing a song for these other band members. That's what I'm doing. And then you've got a song like Good Kisser, which is very directly to, you know, it's like a story. It's to another person. But then you've got a song like Making Do, which sort of seems like it's written to a generation. Um, and I feel like it's the kind of thing, once you've seen audiences in front of you and once you begin to understand that your music can reach, you know, farther places, that's the kind of song that, that you can come up with. I, I'd like to hear a little bit about that one. Yeah, I, I think that song is a really great example because it was Mike Calabrese um, wrote wrote that song and gave it to the band and then and then Bridget continued and finished the song with him. Um, but you know, knowing my Calabrese, we really knew that for him it was like the same as somebody like sitting down and like writing like a breakup song or a song about heartbreak. Like we just knew that this was like a cathartic um, experience for him to express his anxieties about climate change. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't, it's, it's a song about climate change. So I think he wanted to address it to, to everybody because he's, you know, I think part of experiencing the anxieties of climate change is living in a state where you're like, does no one else care about this? Cause it's, you know, we, we all have to keep living our lives. And so he was writing about that sort of paradox. Like we'd have to make do with what we've got. We have to just be here, but we also have to like live with the, with, you know, this knowledge and, the you know uncertainty um when i sing it i think of him and i think of what he's taught me and i'm i'm thinking more about my friend and their feelings and sort of from a place of empathy and less about sort of like let me you know let me get uh let me like preach something to the masses to the next generation merry christmas you're working harder than Bridget, you, you mentioned hypotheticals a moment ago. That's a song that I, that I, when I was listening to it and we were kind of, you know, refreshing our memory on songs before we got together, I didn't want to stop listening to that one. Um, I, I was like, I know I should get on and check out another one, but I keep, I want to keep listening to this. And a lot of it was just because of that groove. It's just so infectious. I've been playing out a lot of hypotheticals in my mind. I've been writing your name down next to 
found myself thinking, usually when I find a band that is as instrumentally proficient as your band is, there's often something that gets sacrificed on the other end when it comes to, oh man, they're all so good, they, they play so well, but I don't, yeah, the lyrics are okay. You guys don't have that problem. You guys, the, the songs are saying something to me. I like what the melodies are doing. I like how the vocals sound. And then and the instrumentation is still just so, like, you know, out of bounds, you know? And my question is, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. And um, I think it really comes down to... Uh, chemistry and sort of a combination of strengths that exist within the band and um you know that was a song that when i initially thought of it like i knew what the melody was and i knew what the baseline was and those things were kind of synced to one another but that groove that like mike brought to the song was was something only he could bring to the table and then like the delivery of the song that that Rachel brings to it like really makes you hear that story and uh and and you know follow along the with what's going on and and stay engaged with that and um yeah and and same with with everybody else there's the incredible keyboard solo like yeah i think like with songwriting and music production there is an importance to striking a balance with all those things and like choosing moments where each of them is going to shine because if they're all interesting mm. at the same time, they kind of like cancel each other out. So definitely have to find right. ways of like using those strengths in a way that's harmonious. And uh, yeah, so hopefully I, I think that's, that's something that we achieved on that song. And uh, it's sort of like, leaves little moments for everybody to to do their thing that they do so well yeah you know one of the things that's that's uh different about this album is that aki burmese the keyboard player is now a member of the band um and as we look at the songwriting credits he's actually on six of the songs on the record so not only do you have this great keyboard player who's kind of been a part of it for a bit but now also contributing songs and what's interesting is that uh rachel and bridget you each separately uh collaborated with him i think every band member separately collaborated with him for for a song uh on on this record um having another writer slash co-writer come into the band in what ways does that sort of adjustment to the songwriting you know the way things have been done songwriting wise in the past adding another person, adding another element, how does that sort of just shake things up overall creatively, um, you know, when you look at the, the project as a whole? Well, yeah, Aki is a songwriter. Wow. We, I, you know, I sort of can't believe it. We, we asked him to come and play keys with us on a tour like four years ago, and, and I, it's like now we have him as a songwriting partner, which is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we were all just yes, yeah, super excited to write with him because we're all, all we're already such big fans of Aki's music. Um, like he, you know, we've been going to see him play um, shows for years in New York, so I, I was you know very familiar with his songwriting style. So it was fun to sort of um, you know look up, look through my old songs and be like, oh, actually, I think this would be a really good one for for Aki to sort of expand upon. Um, knowing that the way how he writes songs um, I'm also really inspired by the way that Aki creates demos he does it also a little bit everyone makes demos differently in this band which is really cool like 
some people submit like fully produced things, you know, uh, obviously like my Calabrese is always have like a really involved and like complete, you know, rhythmic drum thing happening. And, you know, McDuck's, uh, always have like a very specific vibe to them. Same, same with Bridget. So like Aki, like often will like beatbox and like create like a full vocal arrangement, like for feels like the last time, like basically his demo recording of it, we were like, there really doesn't need, nothing really even needs to change. Like I was even like, are you sure you even want me to sing it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was cool. Like when I sent him Lackluster Lover, uh, you know, he sent it back to me in this form. And I was like, I heard the song like so differently because I was used to just like playing it on the guitar and I had like a totally different feel. And like, I think he like played ukulele and yeah, beatbox. And I was like, oh, cool. You really miss the mark, you really dampen the spark. The more you fan the flame, the more it diminishes. Never had that such a blessed lover. There's no passion to discover, you're just a plus musician in every way he's like an incredible singer he's got incredible range he loves so much he has so much knowledge about different styles of music we bond over musicals we bond over r&b we bond over rock and roll like it just does yeah runs the gamut um Hmm. and it doesn't nothing about the way that he writes feels like it feels super connected to the, to the way that, that we all write songs and the type of music that we like, but it doesn't feel the same. You know, it's interesting. You guys talk about um, collaborating, but you all kind of work alone. Even when you collaborate, you send, you know, some stuff to, to another band member and, you know, everybody kind of does their thing rather than like, Hey, let's all get in the room and work on this till, till something happens. Bridget, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, you know, there have been a lot of Lake Street Dive songs that that you've written solo. I, I'm guessing that if we looked at the entire catalog of the band, um, that you have written more solo compositions, I think, than than anyone else in the group. Um, so when it is time to bring somebody in, this is kind of a two part question. How do you know when you want to bring somebody else into the process rather than just finishing something yourself? And when you have made that determination, how do you kind of decide which of your band members to to bounce it off of um, when you have multiple writers in the group? Well, so as I was saying earlier, we kind of like came into the co-writing thing late in the game. We'd been just exclusively writing solo songs like for the first probably eight or nine years of of being a band. And then... Uh, someone had the very clever idea that we could write songs together. And uh, and so we started doing it, but I think like we weren't great at it at first. It was definitely a learning process to figure out how to do that well together. Um, and so for me, I was kind of like excited about it, but also a little scared. Like, will, will we not do as good of a job? Like in the end, if we if we uh, kind of force this new way of writing on ourselves. Um, and then in the end, like we figured it out and, uh, and I'm so glad that we did because um, it's, it's, I mean, similar to what Rachel's saying about like what Aki 
has brought to the table as a new writer, I think just the process of co-writing has kind of created these like new writers that are just pairs of of band members. Um, because a song that I write with Rachel is, I think, very different from a song that I would write by myself or a song that w Rachel would write by herself. And so um, that's like the beauty of this this new way of writing being a part of our process is that you now have like five individual writers and I guess like I'm not good at math but I don't know how many is there like a mathematical equation for how many pairs you could have if you have five people I'm gonna call my sister <laughs> <laughs> anyways you know now we have like really a multitude of writers that are like just the five of us writing in different combinations and and the results are like totally unique and uh, to that sort of chemistry of those those pairings and uh yeah in terms of who to send it to i mean we we know each other pretty well at this point so yeah it, it definitely like when you have an idea uh the seeds of an idea you can you can pretty quickly identify like oh wow mcduck is gonna really know what to do with this one or rachel is gonna have a lot to say about this topic so i'm gonna send it to her um, I was only noticing for the first time earlier in this conversation that we rarely ever write in the sort of traditional like top line, bottom line way where it's like somebody sends a track and somebody writes a melody and lyrics over it. Like, I don't think we've ever written that way. It's, it is always like somebody has an idea that has like melody, lyrics, chords, and then they send it to someone else to put their spin on it, add a verse, add a bridge, you know, complete the chop it up, move this over here, move this over here, but like finish the idea. I want to hit the rewind button for just a second. And I want to look at the 2012 Fun Machine EP. And that's a record that's basically full of covers. You know, you've got Faith from George Michael and I Want You Back with the Jackson 5, Rich Girl, Paul McCartney's Let Me Roll It. Um, I would imagine you guys can probably slay about anything you sit down and, and try to play. Um, so my question for you is, were there any covers that almost made that record? Something that you guys thought, oh, dude, we're doing such a great version of this. And somebody said, no, that's not quite it. Are there any that just slipped through the cracks? Not that I can remember. I feel like that's that was at that point sort of the covers we had been playing. Maybe it's like, I think I think we still get a little, uh, I think we still like question our approach on this magic moment. <laughs> So, sometimes we might, sometimes you're like whoops shouldn't have recorded that um yeah i don't know if we had any like extra covers in our arsenal um have have we though oh um, we did you know we, we yeah you know what we, we used to cover david bowie um soul love all the time oh yeah that was fun yeah actually why did we record why didn't we do that one that's a great song <laughs> i don't know yeah and then the other thing i'm thinking is like i'm trying to remember songs that we've tried and failed to cover which i know i know we tried to do stuck in the middle with you and we, we couldn't make that one happen somehow right that didn't work yeah it's interesting too that that you know on youtube like your most viewed videos are your cover of aha's take on me and you guys you know playing the jackson five uh i want you back on the on the sidewalk in boston which says so much about the way that the consumption of music has changed it's almost like you can use a tool like youtube and play covers and people because they already know those songs will kind of flock to watch that and go oh this is cool this is a different take on this song 
which kind of leads people down the rabbit hole to discovering your original music. And it's, it's interesting how technology has, um, changed things so that you can almost, I mean, obviously you play covers for the joy of playing a cover, but at the same time, covers now are a gateway to people discovering your original music in a way that really wasn't open to artists, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's very interesting. Yeah. How like technology kind of incentivizes certain, uh, creative acts. Like people are inclined to do cover songs because they're like trying to make it on TikTok, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, we've definitely benefited from that. And I think we have our fan base kind of like largely thanks to that. I want you back video. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've been a part of that cycle. Although There's some part of me that wishes there was technology incentivizing something else, you know, something uh, more, more original songwriting and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's plenty of great original songwriting on the new record, obviously. Um, And the name of the record for those listening is obviously, I'm not saying obviously, (laughs) although it worked very well as a dual purpose right there. Um, But it's a, it's a really cool, really cool record. And um, you guys have, I mean, whether it's a cover song or an original, you guys just seem like you knock it out of the park uh, every time. So thank you so much for um, spending some time with us today and talking a little bit about your songwriting process. This has been great. Thank you so much. Nice talking with you guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.